My name is Jenna. And I don't think I could have felt more uncomfortable if I'd just been asked to give an impromptu speech on the French Revolution in front of an all-school assembly. Because that's basically what doing a podcast is like. Welcome to book 33, The Illusion. The Illusion, Michael. The gang is on the tail of a, the anti-morphing ray from book 32 and learn from Eric that they want to capture an anamorph to test it on. They create an intricate scheme to crash a community center opening from the sharing and get Tobias caught. That way, when they test the ray on him and he remains a hawk, the Yurks will think that the AMR has failed. Tobias morphs into Axe and learns about his heritage, which is nice. They successfully complete their mission, getting Tobias caught and making it seem like the AMR doesn't work, but get split up so they can't rescue him. Tobias goes through like 20 pages of torture at the hands of the subvisor Taylor, but he manages to hold out until the rest of the gang can rescue him. He has some sort of weird genetic memory of Alfangor's war experiences, with which Axe says is not a thing that can happen. That's this book. That's book 33, The Illusion, Brent. So this book was ghostwritten by Ellen uh, Giroux, G-E-R-O-U-X. I may be leaning too hard into the French for the pronunciation, uh, who also wrote 41, 43, 45, and 47. I can't find anything else in her name on the internet, but there was a Reddit AMA that Kay Applegate did a while back, uh, which is one of the top hits for the name where she said that Ellen was originally someone she and Michael Grant hired to bring them cookies after their son was born. <laughs> uh, which, honestly, and let me... I I wanted to get into this last episode, but I thought it would be more natural talking about this, where somebody asked her why she went with ghostwriters. That was... And I didn't read this whole AMA, I just read this particular question because it was the one that mentioned Ellen Guru. She said that, like, about the time they started having ghostwriters, she had just given birth to real life jake their son and they had had a relative that had an experience with sids that made them really paranoid to like take their eyes off of their baby mm. and so they just never left the house and didn't get any sleep and were hiring people to bring them cookies and one of these people was ellen uh, and she ended up being one of the ghostwriters that Kay applegate is most fond of that's a fucking spectacular story. Do you think she? What? Do you think it's hyperbole that she only brought them cookies? I don't know. Maybe they were pot cookies. I have no idea. Oh, Maybe I like Ellen that. Was she dealer. was their hookup. I, I don't yeah. know. Um, but that doesn't seem likely. I mean, I don't know. She might have been a scholastic intern. The thing is, I can't find any other mentions of her name on the internet, uh, which leads me to believe that she probably just went on to do something else she did some ghostwriting for the animorphs as a side hustle and is doing something else entirely now that's not or it's a pen name visible or or transitioned or something i don't know but i don't like i can't find any hits on her name i that's a that's a pretty great like yeah you hear stories about people getting like discovered in the mall and becoming <laughs> models that it's a way better story to say yeah i was i became a scholastic ghostwriter because i brought ka applegate cookies 
<laughs> cookies on a regular basis. I was their cookie fetch. Right. How often were they getting Uber Eats from this person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Because it's the 90s. Uh-huh. Craigslist doesn't exist. No. That's why I thought maybe a scholastic intern, because I don't know who else was doing cookie delivery at the time. I hope it was. Yeah, it seems early for like a food truck. I, God, I desperately want to know more about this person and this situation. I know, I really do, especially since she went on to do so many more of the ghostwritten books, and Kay Applegate's obviously still very fond of her work. In that same AMA, and that same part of the thread that I read, uh, she <laughs> she advised uh, that ripping off old Star Trek episodes helps to keep up a 14-book-a-year <laughs> release schedule, so I think we know how she came up with the plot for Book 32, The Separation, specifically Season 1, Episode 5 of the original series, The Enemy Within, where a transporter accident separates Captain Kirk into Good Kirk and Bad Kirk. 14 books a year is fucking ridiculous, Brent. I could barely keep up with one fucking podcast a week, (laughs) and we don't even have to actually do much other than read books. And edit. Editing, Don't undercut the editing. I, I, I mean, editing, it's its like six it's hours not, at not, most. It's not, it's not writing a whole fucking book. It's not one plus book, book a, a month. Yeah, yeah. That's nuts. And as a new mom, I like, no wonder my... This sort of, for me, explained why the K. Applegate books during this Ghostwriter period I found less enjoyable. Hmm. I think because she just had a lot fucking going on. She didn't have that much attention to put into them like she did before she had a kid she's got no sleep she's writing another series at the same time she literally has one person just delivering cookies to her house Uh, right exactly it's nuts so of course obviously i'm not as big a fan of the separation as i am of some of her earlier stuff she's like got so much i I mean k applegate's such a badass yeah she's so good she's so good I love K.A. so much. I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I hated this book. I, let me. Okay. No, we talked about this pre-show. Go, go let's yeah. lay it out. Lay it out for me. Let me. And let then me I'll rebut. A good. F- let me go to put put a good foot forward first. I thought it was very well written, uh-huh. and I thought it had some really good characterizations, but not for the animorphs. <laughs> I like I thought it I thought it was really well written and 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 well paced and all of that. It just s- felt bad for an Animorphs book. Like if this were a book in a different series, if this were maybe some sort of anime episode, I think it would be more fitting, but for an Animorph books, I thought this was just shit. Okay. And and let's so let's let's open. Let's open on the dance. Okay, I'm, I'm going to just interject here before we open on the dance that I really, really enjoyed this book. Mm. Uh, I thought it was great, but I also recognize that that probably results from this book being written seemingly specifically for me. <laughs> because Audience of one. Yeah, it's weird because I, you know, have always identified with Tobias. And in this book, he very much is... Awful. Well, he's... That's unfair of me to say. I'm sorry. No, it's it is it was 100 fair. Is the thing, um, he's very much projecting his internal guilt and insecurities onto his friends and assuming the worst about them, even when he's making cr- like 
semi-accurate analysis of their intentions. He's doing it in the worst possible light and with the worst possible motives. Uh, and basically just being a huge jerk to the people that love him because he's miserable. And uh, because that feeds so much into my identification with Tobias, because I am a monster who's mean to the people that love me uh, because I'm miserable. Yeah, and you're part hawk, which we don't talk about enough really on this podcast. It's entirely from the waist down. That's why we don't talk about it. Um, so that that's why I really like this. I rolled with the characterization of Tobias because it fit with my characterization of myself hmm. as the sort of monster who's just terrible to their friends because they're insecure and guilty about being insecure and also about being terrible. Um, and so it just sort of rolled in with me. And I 100% understand why you were not as impressed with the characterization of Tobias and his assumptions about the other Animorphs because you don't have my particularly unique broke brain. Yeah, I've got a different kind of broke brain. Yeah. Just to put this in context for for people who might not have read the book, this book opens with Rachel and Tobias at another school dance. They've been there. They've been there for like an hour and 50 minutes and haven't danced. And it's been- What the fuck? By the way, yeah, a pretty miserable situation where they're not having any fucking fun. And Rachel is finally like, uh, Tobias, would you want to do you want to dance? And Tobias is like, I've only got 15 minutes left in this morph. And that's how long songs are. So that'll be really close. And Rachel's like, no, it's like three minutes, buddy. Uh, I mean, let's be fair. It could have been November rain. That's true. It could have been. It could have been been any meatloaf song. Yeah. (laughs) So they go out on the dance floor and then Tobias sees the clock and it's like, time has passed. I've got to freak out and morph back. And Rachel's like, okay, could we just talk for like a fucking second? Uh, I just went through a weird ordeal where I was split into two halves and I would just love like a normal evening of us spending time together. Uh And Tobias is like, are you trying to trap me with your emotions into becoming a human nothlet because you don't want me to be a bird because if I'm a bird, I'm going to die prematurely because birds don't live that long. (laughs) So it's just this weird, it, it just this really unfortunate characterization of Rachel because he Tobias is very overtly in his narration like Rachel I think she's trying to trap me as a human so that I'm a human and we can have romance because fuck the animorphs I guess and the book I think the writing is not clear it wasn't clear for me I think it's clear for you yeah for me reading it it was for me reading it it wasn't clear whether that was actually what Rachel was trying to do or just Tobias's perception of what she was trying to do. And I think if I were coming from your angle, which is obviously Rachel isn't trying to do that, this is Tobias projecting, I think maybe I'd be a little bit more accepting of this as the opening. Yeah, and, and that's how I read it is Tobias is guilty about the fact that he is unwilling to make that hard choice that would make things better for Rachel. Uh, he's unwilling to become a human nothlet. And she doesn't even, she's not pushing for that. But because he knows that that would make things better for her, he feels guilty about not choosing that. And so he's sort of projecting that guilt onto her trying to manipulate him somehow into doing it, which, I mean, I'm not a good person. 
And that's really. Oh, was there the was that silence? There no, was like nothing. There's nothing else. I'm not a good person. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, that uh, that characterization, I think, is really interesting, and that's part of why I struggled with this book, is that I don't think that's something we've seen from Tobias up to this point. It's something we've seen from Brent, for sure. <laughs> but, <laughs> Shit. Well, you've known but me longer than this podcast, so of course you've seen it. <laughs> I just don't... There's nothing from any previous book that suggests that that's how Tobias approaches these situations. In fact, he seems very has seemed up to this point sort of very naively trusting almost in in some situations like I don't know. like we it was not too many books along a book, books ago where Tobias is like oh don't parents not care about their kids and Rachel had to be like oh Tobias you sweet you sweet fool so for this for this flip side of that it just seemed weird you don't think that that was Tobias like fishing that's in the in the couple books ago that moment yeah that that moment where he's like oh do you not just tell them to fuck off you don't think that that was tobias sort of unconsciously fishing for someone to feel bad for him about a shitty home life i didn't i didn't then i don't <laughs> think we framed it like that in this podcast where we talk about those things no i don't think we did either but looking back on it i kind of feel that way i think you're looking back having read this book and accepted the interpretation of Tobias in this book. And maybe this book entirely changed my impression of Tobias uh, because it makes him as flawed as I am. Oh, Oh, Brent, was that you fishing for somebody to feel sorry for you? No, no, please do not feel sorry for me. I'm, (laughs) I'm doing way better than I have any right to. So it just, and there's, there's a moment similar to this with Rachel and this situation with Rachel is a little ambiguous. You just sort of have to trust that Rachel's not the horrible monster Tobias is painting her, which I do because I love Rachel. Well, I mean, fucking 30 books in, why would you not? You've, why why would you not give Rachel the benefit of the doubt? You've had her point of view book. She had a picture of Tobias in her fucking underwear drawer. Here's the thing though. My meta knowledge of the fact that these are ghost written and could dramatically alter characterizations at any moment and plot lines at any moment means that I don't as much trust the consistency of characters. And this book has proven that that's a fair stance to take. It's a fair cautionary stance to take because this transforms Tobias in this very self-doubting and projecting character. I kind of disagree that it's a fair stance to take because there's... I might be thinking of the last book that we just recorded. In what way? I, I was going to talk about something that Marco said that was a callback and a nice piece of continuity, but I think it was the previous book. Never mind. Oh. I'm thinking just, of book 32. Yeah, just from like a meta standpoint, I'm, I'm a little more cautious approaching the ghostwritten books because, I mean... Because they might perceive Tobias as a, a, a person like this, so maybe they perceive Rachel as somebody who would try to trap Tobias. And I trust Rachel, but do I trust the ghostwriters? That is an extremely meta point of view. Yep. That's as good an opportunity as any to sort of transition into an observation that I was mulling over that as someone who's actually studied media analysis, you probably have a better opinion on. I thought this book was a sort of very on-the-nose attempt to externalize Tobias's internal struggle in the same way that Book 32 externalized Rachel's internal struggle. 
Uh, it's just that in this one, it was by having him tortured by a girl who looks like Rachel, yelling at him that he'll be trapped as a hawk forever. I thought it worked, obviously, because I have emotional issues that sync up with this book. But I'm curious to hear your opinion on how it compared to 32. I, I think I think what you're suggesting is fair. I don't think it lands. Sure. I, I didn't I think, think last book really landed 100% either. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the last book is at least more cohesive. This book sets up a lot of things that it doesn't really close. Like, it sets up early, like at the very opening, Tobias sees like a billboard or in the in the classroom scenes a pushboard about uh, red-tailed hawks and how they die really quickly when they're in the wild because of disease and shit. And then later in Cassie's barn, Cassie's caring for a sick eagle that is nearing the end of its life. And Tobias sees that and is like, mortality. I really, I really <laughs> thought that would circle back. <sighs> and it, it, the eagle does because they use it at the end as a fake out for Rachel's bald eagle morph. But the, the, the theme itself, I didn't think really closed that's interesting. And it's maybe because I read it in like the three hours before we recorded this, but I didn't see those scenes particularly connected. I thought that the, the red-tailed hawk pinboard, the raptor pinboard, was entirely about Tobias projecting his guilt about choosing to stay a hawk nothlet with morphine onto Rachel, and the eagle is entirely being a Chekhov's gun about them using that sick eagle later to try and torture him. I but the fact that the the fact that the pushboard about the the raptors is specifically about raptor mortality like it's literally about how hawks die young in the wild like at at the latest they make it to 18. I mean we've talked about and, that before though. Yeah, about how hawks have a lot shorter lifespan than humans. Uh -huh. But I I feel like that's part of this whole weird guilt that you're suggesting Tobias has that I think is fair about uh, I mean, he wanting to guilty. stay a hawk. Well, he should be afraid cuz hawks die real quick. Yeah. No, <laughs> like, and I mean he's not going to make it that long. They they emphasize several times in the book how his role as the permanent hawk is real necessary for the Animorphs OPSEC, uh, even though, as demonstrated last book, they're all just morphing publicly willy-nilly with no oversight for the shittiest of reasons. So who cares? But he they they I, I thought that this book went to pains to emphasize how valuable he is as a permanent forever really hawkitized and loving it. And that sort of, I guess, fed into my interpretation of his guilt about how much better things would be for Rachel emotionally if he was a a real boy instead of just another jackass on Pleasure Island. Well, I think it's I don't think it's fair to characterize the pressure to return to being a human as entirely about making Rachel happy because again, Hawks don't live that long. Ha. So I, I think there, there are other issues at, at hand and the fact that this book, it, it's borderline a smash cut between, <laughs> between Raptor, this Raptor mortality board, which what a weird thing to have in a high school. Is that something that <laughs> was know. in your high school? The high school is so, very strange though. It's on top of a Yurik pool. 
That's fair. So it's smash cut between Hawk mortality facts. Then there's that scene where Tobias and Jake are talking and Jake's like, boy, I'm really glad you're a Hawk so that you can see stuff. And Tobias is like, yeah, that's right. And then smash cut. Here's this half dead eagle. Because because birds don't live that long in the fucking wild, Tobias. I, I feel like that's all it's all compressed into a very tight section. I don't think that's accidental. But the fact that the, like the eagle does return, as you say, as a as a fake Rachel Morph and, and, and like gets I said, fed to some taxons. Like I said before uh, the recording started, that is probably the literary trope that we make the most reference to. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it comes up. It's a useful trope, and it's uh, it's accurate. But it, it, I just thought that that would play a bigger part, and it doesn't really seem to. Um... And then there's like 30, 20, 30 pages of Tobias getting fucking tortured, which I thought was so boring to read. So this is interesting because I, in weird and I I don't know how to analyze it, uh, contrast to my reading of the morphine process, I read this word for word and there's a bit in there where tobias remembers overhearing his aunt say where does lauren get off dumping him here and i my major thought while hearing tobias tortured was that if we'd had more breadcrumbs like this to put together before the ale thing uh the the andalite chronicles or the pretender Mm -hmm. uh i don't think we would have been I don't think we would have ragged so hard on the Elfangor's Tobias's dad reveal, because as it was, even even in, like, fucking don't at me Twitter, even in the Andalite Chronicles, it was kind of a brick wall reveal at the end. You know, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot to connect it to Tobias other than that last conversation between Elfangor and the Elemist. And in The Pretender, uh, it was Alan fucking Fangor out of nowhere. And if we'd had more, like, I can very easily see an alternate continuity in the gritty Netflix reboot where there's stuff like this seeded early on that pays off later when we see, oh, shit, they mentioned Lauren was Tobias's mom. That's Lauren. I mean, I think there are there are a few very small breadcrumbs right at the beginning because, like, Tobias has that moment with Alfangor. Like, there's some sort of clear connection there. I don't think it's enough, really, to justify the reveal. Yeah. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. So I also thought, and I know we had the same thought, and wrote it down, and it turned out to not be correct, that it would be perfect if Visser, uh, sub, sorry, Sub Visser. Let's, let's talk about Sub Visser 51, yeah, Taylor, sub the Rachel 51 lookalike. Slash Taylor, the person who looks very much like Rachel. I, we both thought, I know, that it would be very good if she had lost that arm in conflict with the Animorphs. Yeah. And that did not turn out to be the case. Up. That would have been such a better story. Right? I, so I hate this character. The whole this thing with the fire is so fucking dumb. It's everything about, okay, nothing about this character was earned. Correct. The, the, this, ta- this Taylor, she... I, reading, reading the part with Subvisor Fifty One Taylor getting introduced, and she's like, 
beautiful and perfect and everybody cowers around her because she's so powerful. It just felt so much like um, a Sailor Moon OC self-insert <laughs> character. I could not shake it. And then like, so like she just bursts in, everybody's cowing to her because she's super powerful. And did I mention like super pretty? And then she gasses them with her artificial arm, which has like a paralyzed gas in it. Every part of the sequence was so fucking weird. And I did not like any of it. A paralyzed gas like the 60s Batman. Yeah, it was. It was. It was weirdly campy. I just, I could not help but think of the very bad Sailor Moon OC self-insert fanfic that I would write me specifically, in, like, middle school about here's my super cool uh, villain character. She's pretty, and she has an artificial arm, but she uses it to, like, paralyze gas people. I... Who is this? I mean... Why is she here? I wonder if it's the same knockout gas that they used in the last book, because when Jake said that he smelled gas in the last book, mm-hmm. I thought he meant gasoline and that the thing was going to light on fire and they were going to explode and be thrown away and it turns out they were just knocked out and woke up in a box. Yeah. And that was sort of how things happened here, except her chi arm did it with a, mm-hmm. an aerosol. Yeah, and she gets Chapman uh, a bun- and a bunch of hork because it's not a very well <laughs> Yeah, Chapman's uh, focused. That's, that's, her, that's her host name. Shut up, Chapman! Shut up, <laughs> Chapman! Shut up, Chapman. I did like that she yelled at Chapman. I, I honestly, I, I sort of, I gloss over a lot of that because I basically just saw her as the externalization. This character is the externalization of Tobias's internal struggle about his guilt over not being a a real boy for Rachel. I, I didn't I see her as a character that. as much as a literary device. I. It felt that she was so much a character, and I think that's part of what I hated about her, because she's given so much time and attention and fucking backstory, mm-hmm. but she hasn't she hasn't been in any of these other books. Yeah, she hasn't like, this is all. her first this is her first appearance. She busts on the scene. We get like pages and pages about her and her weird backstory and how she's all broken. And it's like, I don't give a fuck. Who is this? Right. And Who she's, is this character? She's renting on like she's really eating the oatmeal, which by the way, I want to make that a thing. <laughs> I like it. Uh yeah, I, she's is totally she, on the oatmeal. Is she is she gonna become a recurring antagonist? So I looked it up on Seropedia because I hated her so much. Uh-huh. She gets mentioned in two other books, and then she appears in one other book in, like, the 40s? Let me look up. Are they all I, books me, written by this ghostwriter? That's a great question. Let me. So she's in book 43, which is, in fact, ghostwritten by Ellen. Uh-huh. So that's – and that's her last appearance, so I don't know if she dies. I have – I hope she dies, but I also okay. hope that we don't have another like eight pages about this character that I don't give a fuck about. So she's mentioned in thirty-seven, the weakness, okay, which is not written by the same person, and forty-one, the familiar, which, which is, is written, written by, by Ellen. the same person. Yes, forty-one so. and forty-three, the next two books written by this ghostwriter, forty-five and forty-seven are the ones after that where apparently she is not mentioned. So it just felt like if this felt like Ellen's OC that she was putting in this book. And she's just given so she's given so much time and attention and I just did not care about her. I thought there was going to be more payoff honestly for 
the amount of page count that they spent on Taylor. I did too. And that's sort of why I think that's part of why I was hoping that she had lost like her arm battling the Animorphs because then it's like, oh, you actually you have a past with these characters. Right. And by the way, uh, you guys who think that you're like being real good about not casualty in humans, <laughs> there's more than just murder that you're doing. Yeah, but nope. She was perfect and everybody loved her. And then she went through a tragic fire and then we had to hear about it months later. And I hate it. Yeah. I mean, I guess seen as an independent <laughs> character that is annoying. Uh, seen as a one-off dramatic device to externalize Tobias's internal struggle, it's... Way better. That's a better interpretation. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's still sort of like unearned, but more believable? More understandable, I guess. Yeah. I, it, it makes more sense. It makes more sense that she's just a projection like Tobias. Like... I, if there had been a scene where somebody was like, wow, this girl doesn't actually look like Rachel at all. And I don't know why I'm saying that because nobody suggested it. And then Tobias <laughs> has to be like, oh, you're right. I was just, she isn't. She's just like a blonde girl who's the same age. And I was just projecting all of this. I mean, you know, that would hu- have been nice. humans all look the same to hawks. Yeah, that's true. And you can say that because you're half hawk. Right, right. It's not racist when I say it. When I was living in Washington, this has nothing to do with the book, really. When I was, I just can't stop thinking about it. When I was living in Washington, there's a firework stand outside of Tacoma that I would pass sometimes called Ill Eagle Fireworks. And if you put that all together, Illegal Fireworks. Oh, yes. (laughs) And I thought about that a lot in this book, and I made a note to myself. Instead of calling it a sick sick eagle, which would have been better for this recording, I just wrote down ill eagle every time it appeared in my notes, and I can't stop thinking about it. Why do the Yerks have pleasure and pain buttons? Do you think they use the pleasure buttons recreationally when they're not playing poker? It's it's a TASP. They just, they invented the TASP. The TASP? Is this some fucking Dune thing? No, okay, sorry, this is Larry Niven again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> fucking again. <laughs> the TASP is the thing where you have a, a wire surgically implanted into the pleasure center of your brain, and you have a, an attachment that you put on your head that just electrically stimulates it. Uh, okay, that's great. And it is an addiction worse than any opioid. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I believe it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so, of course, they don't use it recreationally. The Yerks are aware of the danger. Okay, that makes sense. But I I have to imagine every once in a while they pop in. No. Just hit the the pleasure button, baby. The genetic memory that Tobias develops under the influence of the Gamjabar, though, is very much a Dune (laughs) thing. And let me just fucking discourse on that for, like, ten minutes. Because his genetic memory is coming up under the influence of the fucking Gamjabar. He's proved he's a human. He's he's metabolizing the water of life inside him. He's the Kwisatz Haderach. I'm done. Oh, is that it? Okay. Yeah, no, I, I stopped myself. Okay. Because I yeah yeah because I'm 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 only a Frank Herbert Dune guy, not a Brian Herbert Dune guy, so I I can only go so long. D- is that I'm curious to see if that if anything comes of that because that it seemed weird but not implausible weird. It seems implausible weird to me. Yeah, Do- doesn't fit with with the the animorphs aesthetic. Well, I mean, they play very fast and loose with DNA, so yes, of course, genetic memory, cellular <laughs> memory is a thing that can fit into the Animorphs mythos very comfortably. It just seems like a very 
1970s sci-fi trope rather than a late mm. 1990s, early 2000s sci-fi trope. I think that's fair. It's like borderline fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, I mean, specifically because of Dune, because Dune was a very high 70s sci-fi sort of situation. And that's as far as I know, the one of the earlier sci-fi instances of genetic memory uh, showing up. Well, I'm I'm curious to see if that makes a reappearance if that's going to be anything, because we, we actually get like a really nice sort of Tobias and Axe bonding scene <laughs> right, where Tobias is, becomes Axe. This is and... separate from the Tobias and Axe bar mitzvah, right? This is the the, the <laughs> end scene where he talks about the tail blade on his forehead and Axe is like, no, that's not real. That's a superstition. Yeah, I mean, all of it. I just liked okay, all yeah. of the 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 um, uncle-nephew time that they were able to get. Yeah. And Tobias, like, learning about his heritage. I really liked it. That was a, a nice little thing, I thought. I really enjoyed Tobias morphing into an Andalite uh, <laughs> in Axe's form and then Axe walking him through the the evening ritual and, yeah. and getting to experience drinking from the, the lake as an Andalite. Uh, and running through the the field that acts as has the best uh, <laughs> the best forage. It has the best flavor. Yeah, hmm. yeah I, I liked I liked all of those sorts of moments that we had, even if it came at the expense of Tobias's friendship with others. I mean, they were all flashbacks during the pleasure button rather than the pain button. And mm. I don't think that necessarily interspersing pleasure and pain is a an atypical trope for torture i mean it's the classic good cop bad cop good realtor bad realtor type scenario where you've got vic vinegar and hugh honey uh and one of them is is uh saying there, there are people here who will do you great harm so just try to stay calm and i'll get you through this and then the the victim flips yeah yeah i think it's it's not an uncommon trope I, part of the reason it bothered me is that it just kept going. Yeah, like, it was very it lovingly detailed. It was, and it was, it just didn't, like, the the some of the parts where we had flashbacks were interesting because they sort of shed light on Tobias's whole deal, mm -hmm. but, but there was also, like, eight other pages of stuff of, like, this character, Taylor, who we don't know anything about and don't give a fuck about because she hasn't been in any of these other books like torturing Tobias and Tobias feeling bad and it was just like I I it could have been done much more impactfully I think in a lot shorter time but it just kept going there's a whole lot of Animorphs books that I feel like would be better served being twice as long uh and I <laughs> think that this is one of those where the part of it was written as if it was twice as long <laughs> And the rest yeah, of it the wasn't. pacing was weird. Yeah, I mean, they did what they wanted to do. They convinced Vizzer that the AMR doesn't work, and Vizzer promptly, after a single test, killed the scientists who were working on it. Which, once again, definitely <laughs> the right brain half of the starfish Vizzer morph. <laughs> uh, it must really suck to be one of the Yurks whose controller is assigned to the Taxon pit, because how boring <laughs> is that shit? Right? You just have to wait for somebody to fuck up. How do they have a- Which I, actually, I bet happens a lot. How do they have a pit of taxons that haven't eaten each other by the time someone gets dropped into it? 
That's a good question. Maybe it's just, I don't know. They don't have don't know. the the fucking mountain mind keeping them from doing it. They're just hanging around down there in a pit in the dark. With maybe nothing. there maybe there were maybe there were originally like twelve taxon in there, and by the time the scientists get dropped in, it's only like three left, and they're just circling each other, waiting for the to- the time. Yeah, that it's really wasting Yerks. The guards. Uh, there's a very good moment <sighs> where the guards are watching the screens really intensely because they know the visitor will like fuck them up if they don't. Maybe my favorite part of this book. I definitely my favorite part, and I, I'm not just saying that because it confirms everything we've talked about the York hierarchy <laughs> being like. <laughs> but the one of the guards is like, I could have told the visitor that having an open air celebration where there's a hundred thousand bugs and no way to keep them out is a bad idea, and the other guard is like, Yeah. You could have. You could have told the visitor. <laughs> why didn't you, Gary? Why didn't you? And Gary's like, because he would have killed me. You fucking know why, Paul. <laughs> it was such a good, it was a great moment. And it was 100% everything we've always said about how the Yerk underlings deal with Visor 3. Uh-huh. Yeah, you have it confirmed here. Fandalite's canon is canon. <laughs> we're not just more canon than canon. We are canon. Sometimes, sometimes we're just canon. Yeah, sometimes yeah. we're just. Uh, was there anything else from this book that you wanted to talk about? There's a lot. There's a lot in this book. Uh, I mean, I do want to reiterate that I acknowledge that, despite the fact that Tobias is going through a lot, he was being a major jerk to Rachel in the mm. early parts of this book. Like, really, just an irredeemable dick. But he is a teenager. That's sort of how that happens. Yeah. And they sort of make up at the end. Well, Rachel does smooch him. Um, yeah. It's their second on-screen kiss that I am aware of, and she does initiate. Uh, and that's pretty great. And honestly, there's several parts in this, uh, and maybe the last book, too, where I sort of... They sort of bring to the forefront the parts of Rachel and Tobias that get along really well. Like, in 32, there's the... The part of uh, the the mall Rachel who is terrified to be on top of the truck, and that's in stark contrast to when Rachel and Tobias like rode the top of the police car just for fun. Yeah, and and it's stark contrast to the end of this book where they celebrate by like going and and flying together. Well, right, exactly, and it's sort of uh, I think illustrative that that it's Tobias loves Rachel as a whole person. He's just fucked up. Yeah, and I think Rachel loves Tobias as a oh, whole half-person, half-hawk. Yeah, and I, I think... And ten years later, she'd be able to really gush about that on DeviantArt. But right now, she's just really <laughs> fucked up about it. Yeah, and, and that's sort of... It, part of what frustrated me about Tobias's behavior in this book is that Rachel has shown time and time again in the books that... She accepts the hawk part of Tobias and is willing to go out, you know, flying with him and, and be a hawk, be a bird of prey with him. And so the fact that he was like being such a, a jerk during the dance and not willing to engage with the human half the, that, sh- that she was living in, it, it just really made it more frustrating. And that didn't really get resolved because at the end they just go flying again. And it's like, okay, so Ra- Rachel is compromising her half of this reality the reality of their relationship to be a bird of prey but tobias will not do the same really for the human half 
It's a little disappointing. I thought there were several times during the torture scenes where he basically was shown by his pain or pleasure memories uh, how things would be better if he would just do that. Yeah, but I mean, he doesn't at the end. They go flying. Mm. It's not like there's a moment where Tobias is like, actually, let's go get ice cream and hold hands. Mm, He should have. He should have. It would have been a nice moment. moment. Are you telling me that you've never had a shitty moment like that? Like what? Like where you you just, for some reason, are assuming the worst intentions from someone who you know loves you. No, yeah, all the time. I, I, yeah, as somebody who suffers depression, there are periods of my life where I assume everybody hates Uh, me and nobody actually wants to. Yeah, yes, air five. Air five, Uh uh-huh. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's just that I, this is something that's new for Tobias, and I don't think Tobias really made it right. No, he didn't. No, he, he 100% didn't, and that's why I didn't think that the externalization of his struggle really landed very well. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, like, yeah. it's extremely on the nose for him to be microwaved and tasked alternately by someone who looks like Rachel yelling at him about how he traps a hawk forever. Because <laughs> uh, he doesn't really, like, nothing really changes at the end. He just like, oh, well, you endured torture, and now that's fine. But at the same time, <laughs> yeah. that's that's not necessarily an unrealistic outcome, because he's a, a hawk dude who got tortured, and now he has to go back to how things were, and... They're all teenagers in a guerrilla war, and I feel like I feel like if he's very much more fucked up in upcoming books, this will be a more of a payout than if things just go back to normal. It, it, it that's part of what I feel like is unresolved in this is that it this opens and changes a lot of things about these characters that it doesn't necessarily close off in, in any meaningful way. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see if the other ghostwriters or writers, uh, K.A. or the other ghostwriters, pick up this sort of information. I mean, we know Taylor appears, or is at least mentioned in one non-Ellen book, so we'll see. I mean, according to Seropedia, 32 was the last book that K.A. Applegate writes before 53. So Okay. Well, um, here we are. We're in the doldrums, Brent. We made it. You know, I, people call them the doldrums. Still water. But I, I feel like that's unfair. I yeah, I'm trying to keep a a more neutral stance. It's just when books like this fuck with the characters so senselessly, mm. it's harder. Okay, I I was a way bigger fan of this than Jeffrey Zilke's The Extreme. Uh, oh, fuck! Which one was the extreme? That was the one at the, the extreme. Yeah, it was. It was the one in the Arctic Circle where there was oh, uh, stuff, yeah. and it was just pages and pages of endless Arctic survival. Yeah, I agree. I liked this one more than that. Like, I, I like this was a well written book. It just wasn't a good Animorphs book. So I, I think we're just gonna foreverly disagree on that because I. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, what you read as a, as a. A completely out of left field characterization I read as a deepening of my identification with the character. <laughs> yeah, and I respect that. I appreciate that we can come to this book and have such divergent opinions on That's it. That's one of the great things about media that so many people 
have as a formative part of of their youth and identity is that everybody gets something slightly different out of it. It's so great to have so many perspectives on like the same core characters. Is there anything else about this book that you want to talk about? I would like to mention that I want a print of the famous painting Hork Bajir playing poker. <laughs> I really like, yeah, I like that that image of Axe and Tobias opening the office door and seeing a bunch of uh, Hork Bajir like draped awkwardly over chairs. Because how do you even sit in a chair if you're covered in blades? Playing poker. Yeah, they're, they're chairs that have <laughs> blade slots. They're wicker chairs. They're, sure, they're lawn furniture. Sure. And how do you even cheat as a hork playing poker? That's my question. Because you don't have sleeves. Where are you tucking those cards? Cloaca. Okay, gross. <laughs> do hork have cloaca is a question that I want the, I the Fandalites fandom to answer. I think they're pretty bird-like. I think I, I'm going to come down on the pro-cloaca side, yeah. No, I think that's legit. Okay. At least we can agree on something. We agree on so much stuff, Jenna. It's the minutia <laughs> that we disagree on. And that's why we're like a microcosm of nerd culture. <laughs> because broadly, we think the same things. But we're very passionate about the minute differences in our interpretations of those things. Okay, I have nothing else for this book. So let's close it on out. Thank you for joining us. I do want to say that the oh. the new entrance to the Eric pool here is a bunch of adults crawling into a McDonald's play place or a discovery zone, which is in no way suspicious. A, a, an entrance that they're actually going to be. Well, it's but it's like it's part of the sharing. It's part of this new sharing community center. Nobody's going to be there at night other than people who are already yerks. Because I thought the same thing. But when I sat and thought about it too much, because that's what we do this podcast for. I was like, no. That's fair. We do not. Because it's a, it, they probably only use it at night. And the only people who are going to be in the area are people who are with the sharing. We do not think that the Yerks built this community center out of concern for the community. I do not think that, no. I think it's sharing only. All right. Take us out, Jenna. All right. This has been book 33. Next week is book 34, The Prophecy. Mm. We're getting close to Visser. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you know which one? Which number of the visor is? It's in two or three books from now. Okay, so not not the next book. Yeah, not the least. not the next book, but we're we're closing in on it, and I'm very curious to read a visor perspective. Yeah, I can't wait to read the uh, chapter where he gets cut in half. Exactly, start, I want to be. More. I want it. I want it confirmed. <laughs> All right. I really can't wait until we're done with the whole series so that I can actually read all of the AMAs and Seropedia and listen to their podcasts and stuff. Mm-hmm. But no, go, go ahead. I, I please I don't, take us out. Please do the ending spiel, Brent. Really? Yeah, really. I, you do it every time. Okay. Well, I mean, I I feel guilty Brent, about that. Please just do the ending spiel. I feel guilty about that. I feel like I I over talk you, Brent. I'm begging you, please just release us from this recording. <laughs> if you want to hit up. Uh, we're at Fandalites on Twitter. We're Fandalites.tumblr.com. We are Fandalites at gmail.com. You can visit our website at www.fandalites.com or our sister website at andalitetruth.org. Ba-ba! Uh, thank you to Dustin O'Dell for the use of his music for our intro and outro. Hit his stuff up at dustinodell.bandcamp.com. He does some great chip tunes. Uh, 
And until next time, remember, nostalgia is a drug. <laughs>